Hello guys, welcome. Thanks for tuning in this week to the NTT20 Monday podcast. It just hits a little different at this stage of the season, doesn't it? What uh, what an exciting anti-penultimate or pre-penultimate, as George likes to say, weekend in the EFL it was. Two more to go now and, well, the dominoes are starting to fall. On this episode, we will be waving goodbye to Watford. We will be discussing Hull City's promotion, a couple of others teetering on the brink of promotion and a few who have fallen through that very specific of football cliches, the relegation trap door. I'm Ali Maxwell, George Ellick's with me, BBC Radio 5 Live's George Ellick this week. Yeah, it was awesome Saturday on 5 Live. Um, it was it was a bit different because normally I either do a little hit before the games, a little hit after, one, after them or I'm on during and this time we did both. So I had a 12.30 chat with, with Steve Crossman um, and Andy Reid. And then I was on for the whole of the second half of the games as the goals went in with Steve Crossman and Richie Wellens. And then back on for Sports Report at 5.30 to go over what had happened. And I must say, you know, we, we've, I've been, I've praised Mark Chapman on this podcast a few times. Steve was unbelievable on Saturday. The way I, I cannot begin to imagine how he was staying on top of everything that was going on. He was he was consistently reading out all the permutations and what had to happen for each team to go up and down in a way that was quite um, useful for me as, a, as, a, as, a, as somebody who was having to answer the questions. <laughs> so for the listener, I mean, it was amazing. So I even texted him afterwards just saying, that was unbelievable, mate. Well done. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was really good fun. And I'm back on again on Saturday. Um, so hopefully more drama to unfold then. Oh, that's excellent. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I enjoyed listening along. Four thumbs up combined between George and I <laughs> for Steve Crossman. Um, while you were on BBC Radio 5 Live, we were having a great time in the NTT20 squad. Now, you guys... I thought, I thought you were about to talk about your brother's uh, birthday barbecue there. No, you were having no. a great time at the barbecue. I was mostly on my phone talking to the uh, NTT20 squad, <laughs> uh, our new Telegram group. We're doing this through Leveller. Uh, George, we talked about it a bit on the betting show, but just give us, uh, give the, the listeners of the Monday pod exclusively uh, an idea of, of what we've set up, why we've set it up, and how they can get involved if they like to. Yeah, so it's something we are doing from now until the end of the season. Uh, you pay £9.99 uh, to join the NTT20 squad. Uh, there are two Telegram groups. Telegram is basically the same as WhatsApp. Um, two Telegram groups at the moment. One is the NTT20 squad. One is the NTT20 betting squad. So you can kind of choose to enter the betting squad if you're that way inclined. We know a lot of people aren't. So uh, in that case, you can just be in the NTT20 squad. And we've just got loads of EFL football fans who I am so happy by how awesome everyone is <laughs> there it's such a nice group of people there's none of the kind of um stuff you'd worry about maybe when you're getting a group of people together who you don't know everybody's incredibly respectful of each other everybody's very very knowledgeable we've got people from peru from the united states from the isle of Wight on there um it's just really really good fun and um you know you know obviously no pressure to, to sign up we know that 999 is a fair bit to ask um it's you know the first time we've ever asked um for anything back in return for a bit of extra uh, engagement a bit of extra content um the first ever ntt20 exclusive betting tip was a winner on saturday which was a nine to two shot Connor mcelaney to score first for, for oldham against grimsby but it's just a really nice place to be and we've got some stuff sorted in the coming weeks we're going to be trying to get a couple of interesting people on for for q and a's and bits and bobs like that so 
if you do love the EFL, if you want to be fully immersed in everything um, EFL during the end of the season and the playoffs, of course, as well, where Ali and I will be engaging with, with everybody during the games, then then do check it out. £9.99. You can find the link uh, in the tweets for this podcast or you can go to leveller.com and we are on the, the home screen there as well. It'd be great to, to see you in there. I can only echo everything that George has said there. Um, the first match day of the NTT 20 squad absolutely hammered home why we hoped and thought it would be a, a good thing, a positive thing, and, and hopefully uh, enjoyable to be a part of. And we also know that lots of people have joined just out the kindness of their hearts to support us uh, having listened to, well, we're, we're coming up to the five-year anniversary of the pod, George, so that's nice. Um, and so we, we thank everyone that's joined, everyone who's getting involved, and even those who are just uh, lurking and, and watching along. Um, we got a few questions from the squad members dotted throughout this podcast. That's another perk of being a part of the NTT20 squad. So we'll get to some of those as we go. But do join us, the NTT20 squad on Leveller. Uh, the link is in the description of this podcast, uh, in our Twitter bio, uh, and I'll tweet it as well later on. Uh, it'd be great to see you in there. Now, let's start with the team that we wave goodbye to, a team that we barely knew, George Watford, just a, a one-season stay uh, in the championship. They beat Millwall on Saturday, and Ismail Asar penalty, which he won and scored himself. Uh, it was it was businesslike. It was fairly straightforward. And Watford move up to the Premier League, a, a magnificent second half of the season. Uh, I've actually, I think I've split their season into four in quite a nice way. I'm going to read this out to you and see if you concur afterwards. This is this is how I think Watford's season went. Part one, boring and quite good. Part two, <laughs> part two, boring and not good. Part three, quite boring. And quite good. Part four, quite fun and really good. What do you reckon about that? Yes, I mean, I think I think you've you've hit the nail on the head when it comes to results. I, I still don't know if they were ever actually any good under Vladimirovic. I, I think, despite amassing quite a lot of points, when you said that they were boring and quite good, <laughs> I, I'm not really entirely sure how they managed to do that. Um, but yeah, they they've been great in this in this kind of second half of the season, and especially in the run, as you mentioned. Um, it's just, it's quite interesting to see how long it's taken to kind of turn them into a really good championship side. When you, when you think, when you consider how good the the squad itself is, you know, the, the switch from four, four, two to four, three, three, or I mean, sometimes it was kind of three, five, two, uh, to four, three, three has just been <clears throat> so obviously good. You know, it's basically enabled Femenia and Messina, Femenia and Messina to be really good attacking options, providing the width, uh, overlapping, um, Saar and Semmer previously those two players it was kind of so bunched out wide um, and you know with Pedro being the, the lone striker somebody who's happy to be pretty versatile in that role enabling Saar to come inside and be be a goal threat too um, with Will Hughes running championship games as he should do um, and kind of being given more of a, of a pivotal role in the three-man midfield yeah, I mean, I don't think it's rocket science what Chisco Mignoth has done um, I don't really know what Vladimir Ivich was was trying to achieve with this group, um, I think Sirolta and, and Trusdekong of of being a, being a consistent centre back partnership has been massive as well. I think Sirolta is a player who will be very popular um, after not very long in in the Premier League. You know, he's 23 years old and he's and he's proven himself to be better than Championship level, and, and I'm sure he'll be somebody who's linked to, to bigger things in the future. Um, with I mean, the issue now, I guess, is that next season. Watford, you know, Miss, uh, Chisco Mignoth was brought in to play a more expansive style of football to get the flair players performing and, and doing more. 
you, you almost think that they need to go back to the Ivic um, ideals when, when they're in the Premier League next season and go back to trying to make sure that they are solid. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've been excellent and they are now fully worthy of their, of their promotion. Um, anybody arguing that? given what they've done over the last few weeks, um, hasn't been paying attention. I mean, their, their defensive record is still very good. Of course, yeah. But I get your point, certainly. In fact, the defensive record is something to keep an eye out just for the next few games. They've currently conceded 28 goals in 44 games. Now, mm-hmm. I think the modern record, by which I mean post-2000, is West Brom uh, 01 conceded 29 goals. So two clean sheets uh, and Watford would break the defensive record. The defensive record that we thought... Might have been under threat from uh, Swansea earlier in the season. Swansea, who have conceded eight goals more than Watford now. So Watford's uh, numbers always looked a little more sustainable. And uh, as we often think will be the case, happily this time, uh, that has sort of borne out as the season developed. Uh, so if if it, if the sacking of Ivic and the hiring of uh, happy Cisco Munoz was the key moment, I just wanted to flag up a couple of others as well. I would love to run... A separate simulation of this Watford season where Troy Deeney doesn't pick up any injury. Now I'm not actually sure what the injury has been and whether or not it just became clear that him not being part of the playing squad was best for for all parties but it is fascinating to, to see that isn't it because remember I remember talking on this pod not that long ago maybe two months ago about how their last 10 goals like seven of them had been Deeney penalties one yeah. of them had been a Deeney tapping. You know, he scored one goal from open play this season, and and mm. his numbers otherwise inflated by numbers. But but it's not his just... numbers otherwise inflated by numbers. <laughs> exactly <laughs> by penalties. <laughs> it's not just as simple as like, oh, they would have they would have stumbled across the right formula because they were enthralled to Deeney. The whole club is completely enthralled to him, and Munoz played it very well when he first arrived because, you know, the suggestion was that that Deeney and Ivic's arguments or falling out or lack of relationship had accelerated Ivic's downfall. Cisco was very keen to make Dini not only his best friend, but mainly giving him credit for most of their wins early on. Mm. Um, and it's interesting to know what would have happened from a sort of personality perspective and a footballing perspective had Dini been present and playing over the last few months. I find it difficult to imagine they would have been as, as good a team as they have been. But that's by the by. The, the other thing I wanted to flag up, and you mentioned all of them in your answer, I mean, Sierra Alter the centre-back, Messina, the left-back, and Hughes, of course, the classy midfielder. Before the 1st of January, George, they had played 258 minutes combined. Bear in mind, one match where they all play and complete 90 minutes is 270 minutes combined. So less (laughs) than one match, essentially, those three played. All three of them key and crucial in the second half of the season. And that's a big reason why Watford kicked on so much. Um, Last on this, we, we will miss... Watford fans who I think have been very supportive and, and seem to have enjoyed the pod even in times where we weren't being particularly uh, positive about their team. So thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed following a few of them. I think there's a, they've been a, a very pleasant fan base for us. But what I would say is we, had, we, we exchanged a lot of niceties on Saturday after we tweeted them wishing them well. Uh, but if I had a penny, George, for every time a club got promoted to the Premier League and their fans tweeted us to say they'd keep listening to us every week next season, don't worry, lads, we'll keep listening. Mm-hmm. Even though they're in the big time, only for them to bin us off for those big Premier League podcasts, I'd be a rich man. So, you know, <laughs> I won't expect anything, um, but it'll be a bonus to, to keep any Hornets listening to this pod next season. Of course, they're not likely to be the champions of the division. Norwich need, well, basically one point to secure that. They beat QPR on the weekend. Um, 
it was quite an entertaining game, actually. Sort of end of season fair. Lovely goal from Max Ahrens. Um, my favourite keeper in the championship, Senny Dieng George. He got caught out by the championship goalkeeper gods, I'm afraid. A long-range shot from Quintilla, which he just missed. Misjudged, yeah. to say to say it kindly. So that was sad. Um, but we, I think we just have to talk about Buendia and Adel Tarapt quickly. <laughs> Buendia's numbers this season, 14 goals, 16 assists. A, a, a different beast to what we saw two years ago when he was essentially the best player in the division. A different beast entirely still. Tarabt, of course, in that famous season, I think it was the 11, uh, the 10-11 season, 19 goals and 21 assists. So still 10 goal contributions lower than Tarabt. But to all intents and purposes, George, surely the closest contender we've had to best ever championship season by an individual player since lovely wizardry from Adele. Yeah, I guess so. Um, he's been unbelievable. Uh, and consistently so and I guess with, with Tarap the numbers are so good but you've always known that there is a, a genius beyond the numbers as well you know but you, it, it, sometimes you talk about players and their goals and assists and you kind of think well yeah that's that's what they're there to do that's the limit of what they're doing whereas I think for both Buendia and Tarap their um, impact on games goes way way beyond just the the goal actions because Buendia all season has been such a pivotal force and such a good Norwich side um, as a creator, as a goal scorer, but also as just somebody who enables Norwich to control games in the way that they do. Um, his his guile, his skill, his creativity, his tenacity. Um, he's just such a well-rounded player. Uh, I'm so intrigued as to what's going to happen next season with him because I, I think there seems to be, have been a bit of a shift at Norwich in the last few weeks. Um, I know speaking to Dean Ashton at... Um, at, uh, at Quest a couple of weeks ago, where I don't think the feeling is anymore that they're going to sell loads of players. I think it looks like Max Ar- Max Aarons is, is the, the likeliest to leave uh, to Everton, which has been pretty widely reported. And if they, you know, you assume they'll get a pretty hefty fee for him, I think the feeling is that will be reinvested into the playing squad and then hopefully they'll do their best to keep Buendia, to keep Campwell. Um and for me, I guess it's all about who's in for Emi Brendia. I personally don't think the allure of, of moving to Arsenal, which is where he's been linked the most, is particularly alluring. Like I don't, I don't really see why he would go from one quite fun um, Premier League side who idolise him and won't be playing in Europe to another one where he's going to have to struggle to get in the side. Who have a lot of young players who are coming through who look very promising who aren't going to be playing in Europe. It, what, it doesn't... What, what if I offered you a chance to move to a podcast that, you know, was not necessarily that much better, but could quadruple your wages for this podcast and take you from £5 a pod to £20 a pod? But then, but what I would say to that is that it would, if I went, if I made that move and went to that podcast, the chance of ever getting on the biggest podcast <laughs> immediately diminishes. And I think Emmy Wendy will know that he is probably good enough to get a move to somewhere. I mean, we spoke about Atleti so many times, but I think he's good enough to play for basically most Champions League sites. Um, and if you move, if you, if you make the step to an Arsenal where their aspirations are to get there, it's going to be very, very hard to make that make that move again. Um, you know, this is no disrespect to, to Arsenal. My nephew is a is a massive Arsenal fan. I've probably got a, so- a softer spot for them than any other of the of the big of the big six. But um, I I have a feeling. I have a feeling, unless someone big, big comes in for him, that he might still be there next season. That would be exciting. I just want to shout out the boys from the Talk Norwich City pod and YouTube channel. They did a Mm. 24-hour live stream 
uh, over the weekend a, a phenomenal effort i mean the thought of talking to you or anyone for 24 hours is insane they had some <laughs> amazing guests uh, they were as always very well supported by the norwich city community and they met, and they raised over 20,000 pounds for the big c uh, a norfolk based cancer charity so just all of our admiration and love for the yeah. lads um jack and chris uh, i'm sure they'll take a few days to, to recover but well done uh, and actually uh, first question from an ntt20 squadder i've been i'm trying to i'm trying not to call them squaddies because i i'm not particularly squad members i'm not particularly military minded but the first squad member question ollie brady actually asked i'd be interested in hearing your takes on norwich and watford's chances next season they're much better teams than they were last time and you've kind of half touched on it um, on both teams there. But in general, how positive are you feeling about... I, I think we just have to use survival as the number one objective. How positive would you be feeling about a Norwich survival or a Watford survival? Of course, it, uh, it's getting... Well, it seems to be getting tougher and tougher for the teams going up. I think they have a way better chance than most teams who've gone up recently. Um, I kind of touched on this the other day where... I think the three, well, the two promoted teams and in my head, Bournemouth, even though they lost on the weekend, are still the most likely team to go up through the playoffs. Um, I think these squads are just so much better than any squad we're used to seeing at this level, partly because they were sides, well, especially in Bournemouth's case, they were sides who were were buying um, in order to, to reinforce their Premier League status rather than um, to kind of scrape for survival. Or, or just to, to make sure they did survive. And then the COVID issue as well, I think meant that loads of players who would have moved on otherwise, I think Dan Juma and, and Saar being the main two, um, meant they stayed at the club. I think if you look at the teams who are coming down, um, the quality of their squads, whether it's Sheffield United or West Brom or Fulham, given that most of their players are on loan, is, is nowhere near the same level as, as the three teams who, who've gone back up again. So I, I think there are teams towards the bottom of the Premier League who aren't in the relegation zone who've been a bit lucky. And, and I think that both Norwich and Watford are in a much, much better position to challenge those teams next season. And, and I also think the Championship next campaign is going to be a much, not easier, but I think the, the it'll be much more open division where it, it's kind of ridiculous that we've got a Watford and Bournemouth side who've had two pretty big chunks of their season where they've been poor enough to sack a manager. Yeah, at the end of the day, they're probably going to finish second and third fairly comfortably, although maybe Bournemouth no longer third because of the the weekend game. So, yeah, I think they're both definitely, if, if you know, talking now and looking at those teams towards the bottom, you know, looking at Newcastle, um, and I know Burnley won 4-0 yesterday, but those kind of squads, I, I think, are going to have it much tougher with, with the calibre of... Um, of 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 Norwich and Watford, as I mentioned earlier, interesting to see what Watford do manager-wise because the job that Chisco has now got is very, very different to the job that he was given when he was brought in. Mm. I just wanted to add that I think an interesting wrinkle, and you've touched on it there, is that none, neither of the two teams we're talking about here, Norwich and Watford, are beholden to loans and loanees, which has been a real theme of the last few years in terms of promoted clubs, not just... Well, all three, basically, from last season, West Brom, Fulham and Leeds to a certain extent. Now, Leeds did did well out of it. And of course, you know, we, we, we've, we've mentioned before, it's kind of a, a low risk way of building a squad to win promotion from the championship. You, you, you pay a smaller loan fee 
and you have an obligation to buy when you go up and you're promised that 100 million pound pot of, of tv revenue money but it can eat into how well to, to to what extent you can then build a squad on top of that and and you know Leeds didn't add too many in the summer Fulham and West Brom were either left with loanies who's who's um whose loans had become permanent because they were obliged to, and then adding more low knees on top. I just think, although it's a good short-term way of getting out of the championship, I believe that, that for Watford and Norwich, you know, having fewer of them is going to stand them in better stead. I'm just a bit worried that, you know, you say there are teams that they can... It's hard to predict those at the bottom of the Premier League and how bad some of them could be. I only really see Newcastle, who are in that chunk above the relegation zone, potentially Burnley and potentially Palace, who have got a big rebuild job mm. on their hand, who are going to be like really vulnerable. So uh, I reckon one of the three, no, I reckon two of the three will stay up, but we'll see who. Uh, let's talk about the playoffs. And just a quick note, Watford and Norwich fans, we have been talking about you to start our podcasts for the majority of the last eight months. And I reckon this is pretty much the last time we will talk about either of your sides this season because we got more interesting business to attend to now. And the playoff picture in the championship is all set. We know which four teams will be in it because of results this weekend, specifically Reading failing to beat Swansea and keep any dream alive. But I wanted to talk about Bournemouth against Brentford, George. Uh, Brentford beating Bournemouth despite big game Pontus having a big game Pontus <laughs> and getting sent off. Uh, this, this, is a, uh, this is a lovely narrative buster, isn't it? The narrative being... Oh, seven win in a row, Bournemouth might look like they're going to steamroller their way to playoff success. And Brentford just aren't the same as they were and seem to be getting weaker and, you know, falling away like they always do. And then this game makes you realise, hold on, there's a lot of football still to be played here. And let's not go too extreme with our opinions in the short term based on uh, based on a month or so. For sure. I mean, I'm, the thing I'm taking out of this, <laughs> this game is, yeah, Brentford, uh, Brentford is still actually quite good. Um, because not only you know you mentioned that, that they were down to ten men after fifty minutes, didn't really change the game at all. Uh, Brentford were the better side throughout, were, were fairly comfortable. Well, I mean that they were more than comfortable. I mean they created plenty of chances, rarely looked threatened defensively at all. Um, and you know coming into this game, Brentford hadn't won many games of football, but they were eight unbeaten, and that stretches to nine here. They're still a team who are going to be so hard to beat. You add to that that sides who um, who have playoff suffer playoff heartbreak normally when they're back into the playoffs fare pretty well um, on the back of those um, on the back of that experience. So yeah, I mean for for Bournemouth after their 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 winning run of seven, uh, you know it's not a massive surprise that um, that they put in a poor performance. I think it's going to happen. They they didn't really um, perform to a particularly good level. Dan Juma and Stanislas, the two players who we've kind of started to think maybe. They're going to spearhead this return to, to the Premier League. We're, we're, we're fairly limited in terms of what they offered at all in the game. Um, and for Brentford, yeah, it's just it's, it's a sign, I guess, showing that people who thought their their season was was frittering away, people who thought they were bottling it again. I hate using that word. Um, you know, this is just a very difficult league with two teams in Norwich and, and Watford who've been absolutely rampant, and Brentford are showing themselves to be possibly still the best of the rest um in terms of whether or not these two sides meet again in the playoffs i personally think this would give brentford a massive edge in that i think um especially when you've been down to 10 men exerting that level of, of comfort over 
over another team um, is only going to put you in good stead. I, I'd be very, very surprised if it was as easy for them to, to roll Bournemouth over um, if they did meet again in, in a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, I, I think for, for Bournemouth, you know, the automatic promotion had gone. They were on the back of a, of a ridiculous run, which was going to end. No need to panic. But for Brentford, this has kind of reminded me, you know, I've said so many times, and I still, as I, said, I still do think Bournemouth are the likely winners of the playoffs. But this just shows, you know, this Brentford side is still still very, very good indeed. Um, and when you add Barnsley to the mix, who continue to impress, um, you know, if Swansea looks so clearly to me like the weakest link, and I, and I guess the the main aim now for the three other teams is try and fashion a way to make sure that you've got Swansea in the, in the semis because um, the other three teams are all operating at a pretty high level. 18 shots to four in favour of Brentford in this game. Uh, it's It's been a, a good tactical switch over the last few weeks, and I guess that's how they'll head into the playoffs now. Um, it reflects pretty well on Thomas Frank, I would suggest. Uh, not only that he's managed to find another tactical switch, which makes it probably three or four in total over his tenure, which has just coaxed a little bit extra out of a team that, that might have been flagging somewhat or might have been... Um, found out to you know tactically as as often is the case in the second half of seasons, you know Force and Tony now up top in in what is kind of like a fluid three four one two, um, and it's working well. And, and and another string to his bow would be, as you say, the ability to adapt to to that red card in a big game against a very good team, um, to make the the necessary switches and for the team as you say basically not to suffer uh, any impact on their performance. A really really impressive stuff. As mentioned, that Swansea did enough to get a point against Reading to secure their playoff place. They're currently above Barnsley, so they're in fifth. Uh, Bournemouth, Swansea, Barnsley, all on 77. Quite a significant chunk of goal difference between them. Bournemouth plus 30, Swansea plus 18, Barnsley plus 10. Uh, Brentford, of course, one point above them uh, with a plus 32 goal difference and a game in hand, which they will play against Rotherham in mid-week. And Rotherham against Barnsley is the next fixture to talk about, George, because... Uh, the two things at play here. We absolutely must applaud and celebrate that the uh, Barnsley story continues. We will be seeing them play postseason football, as their owners would, <laughs> would no doubt say, um, Billy Bean himself. But not a lot to praise, just specifically looking at their, their game on the weekend, their 1-0 win against Rotherham. No, they weren't great, were they? They scored after two minutes, but it was a goal that never should have stood Carlton Morris very much leading with his arm um, in terms of out-jumping Victor Hansen, who then was stretched off five minutes later with what looked like a pretty bad injury. Um, yeah, and then and then from then on, Rotherham with a better side. I mean, I, I know, Ali, you don't like talking about refereeing decisions, but this was one of those, which was very important for every for so many reasons. You know, firstly, it's the, it's the goal that changes the game, um, a, a lack of punishment when possibly it was even maybe a red card for the um for the way i mean I, I don't know how much intent was there but certainly the way that he jumps is well i mean but having said that it's not dissimilar to what matt crooks got sent off for in midweek against middlesbrough the consensus being that rotherham were very hard done by there because that shouldn't have been a red card and it but was I don't quite know. a similar I, I think, incident i think i think that you know the dangerous play angle here is 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 more pertinent you know especially i, I know that whatever happens to the you know the the victim of, of the tackle or the foul shouldn't play a massive part in in deciding whether or not it was dangerous play or not. But well, I mean, similarly, it, Gr it quite... Grant, Grant Hall, who got whacked by Matt Crooks in midweek, came off immediately. Um, yeah, yeah, no, fair, 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 fair. But it, I mean, it's whichever way you look at it, Rotherham have come up, come up 
the bad the bad side of the coin has turned up for them on both occasions because Crooks was sent off and the the appeal was was um, thrown out and then here Carl Morris has scored a goal um, and has got away unpunished. Uh, but that only tells a little bit of the story here, even though it was the most significant part of, of what happened in the game. And is you know, and we can add it to an already very long list of of Rotherham, um, you know, bits of, of Rotherham poor luck. Although, as I said on the radio on Saturday, it's important to remember that Rotherham have also chucked in some pretty abject performances recently. You know, the Coventry game especially, they had three home games in a week and failed to pick up a single point. So I think that not- Coventry one, I agree, it's it's the one that I watched live as well. So, it's, yeah. you know, it's kind of front and centre of my brain how disappointing they were against Cov. But yeah. looking at the other games, I don't think they've been poor in any other game. Like, they, they they've... The, the run of form, their run of defeats will have so many people looking at just that and going straight to a narrative of they've had to play so many games, it's taken its toll and they, they're not competing. And it's absolutely not the case at all. No, no, apart I, I, from I, I, I definitely agree game. with that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's fair. But my point is they lost 1-0 at home to Birmingham in a pretty end-to-end game that could have gone either way, but they lost and there was no hard luck story really there. They lost to Coventry. You know, there's that that's six points up for grabs against two sides in the bottom half of the table at home, um, which they have failed to convert. And and I do feel very sorry for Paul Warden. I feel very sorry for for them because you are right. They've they seem to be a team who put in um, good performances and get nothing out of it. But in the, in the same way, the, the the team that they're chasing down in Derby are another one who you know they they may be the architects of their own downfall. But they're another side who similarly seem to find it very, very hard to just win games of football and get three points. And whether that's by by design or by bad luck or whatever, um, they need to find a way of stopping that and, and they're yet to do so. Um, you know, here against Barnsley, they did what we haven't seen many teams do to Barnsley, where they, they basically, well, battered them, might be going a bit too far, but they had the better of the game from the goal onwards. You know, they had enough chances to win. Um, the Barnsley keeper made a string of saves, uh, Collins, in order to to keep it at 1-0. And if, and if either team looked like scoring the second goal of the game, it looked like the away side. And again, they haven't got the result that the performance necessarily deserved. And when you throw the the Hansen challenge um, you know, onto onto that too, then it, it does seem very unlucky. I mean they've but still does it, but does it make you more positive than maybe some who are just looking at results about the the, the next few weeks? They've still got you four to. games to play. They've got two more games than Derby to play and they've got a four-point gap over Derby to make up and the better goal difference. So some people might look and say, well, they're, they're losing every week. That, But it's for, you know, not to just bring stats and numbers into it, but I'm this is what the eye test has told all of us recently. In their last eight games, they've scored four goals from 9.8 expected goals created. Yeah. Like, it's an insane time for your finishing to completely go out the window. And maybe yeah. there is a psychological fatigue to it. I'm, I'm sure high-performance experts will be able to tell us that maybe when you're at your absolute limits all the time, that is where that will impact a striker in high-pressure moments. But, I mean, at the same time, some of the misses have been insane, but they but, but they are creating chances. And if they but do they... that for another four games, one's going to go in off someone's arse. Well... I mean, yes, but at the same time, uh, this isn't a long enough period of games um, for the XG stuff to, to necessarily write itself. It's not as easy as saying they've had nine XG and they've only scored four, so therefore in the next four, if they carry on going, they're going to score them because it's only four games of football. Um, and you look at 
the games they've got coming up. You know, they've got Brentford on Tuesday, which is going to be very, very tough. Although I guess it depends on how Thomas Frank approaches the run-up to the playoffs. Does he maybe give a few key players a bit of a breather? You know, does he say to Ivan Tony, right, you get your feet up, let's give you two games off here, and then you can come back to the semi fit and firing, which could help them. Or does he say, we need to we need to guarantee that we get third, so whoever between Barnsley and, and Swansea picks up the fewest points in the next two games is the one that we're going to play against. Um, it doesn't help them as well that this fixture congestion means it's going to be pretty hard for them to, to maintain this I mean, it's ridiculous saying this level of form given they've they've lost four games in a row, but to maintain the, the kind of higher performance level that we're talking about. The level of competitiveness. Yeah, yeah. Can they maintain this level of competitive, competitiveness over the next two weeks? Like, it's going to be difficult. They've got um, they've got two teams against... They've got two games against teams in Brentford and, and Blackburn who certainly aren't going to make it physically easy for them in those two games. You know, this isn't going to be a case of, of two teams sitting back and letting Rodham dictate. It's going to be pretty frantic. Um, and they're going to have to do their 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 kind of own fair share of, of defensive work on top of trying to make sure they win the games. Um, it's going to be really interesting. You know, I I think if I was looking to out down the bottom of the table now, and if I'd say who I thought deserved to go down, not that anybody cares or it really matters, I think it would be Derby out of the two of them. Um, but it's getting too late in the season to just be making hard luck excuses and pointing at XG tables because... <laughs> Even though if, if the season was to continue for another 20 or 25 games, whatever, you'd be more confident of them getting out of it. They haven't got long and they are showing a a lack of a killer instinct that's going to really, really hurt them. I think they will score at a higher rate over the next four games. <clears throat> I'm looking forward to them doing so. Um, but I take all of your points. Uh, I also, I, I definitely agree that they've been hard done by with some key refereeing decisions recently. I don't agree unsurprisingly, with Paul Warren's suggestion that there is some league-wide conspiracy to send Rotherham down. Everyone wants us down, uh, but I absolutely understand why you might say things like that. Uh, in those circumstances, in those positions, I'm sure I've said many things that I regret in the heat of the moment. Um, uh, now, down at the bottom, uh, outside of Rotherham, well, everyone lost, basically. Uh, Derby lost to Birmingham. Wickham lost to Cardiff. Um, yeah, let, let's let's go there. Sheffield Wednesday lost to Borough as well. Let's go to Derby, George. They lost 2-1 to Blues. Uh, it's five defeats in a row. You spoke about Derby on Totally Football League Show Extra Time on Thursday. I asked you, how bad is it? You said, pretty bad. And then they chucked away a lead. <sighs> as you say, they are the architects of their own downfall at the moment. Yeah, they are. Um I think this, in hindsight, was probably as predictable as it gets uh, that Derby went ahead and then sacrificed and squandered their lead. It's kind of hard to understand how a team and, you know, how a manager like Wayne Rooney, (laughs) who, when you're talking about experience and you're talking about winners, as a player, you can barely imagine anybody who could be more influential you'd hope in trying to inspire a group and and just impart some of that experience and knowledge over to them added to that you've got Colin Kazim Richards who at 34 um is you know he may not have had the success in his career that the Rooney's had but he's he's certainly been around the block enough times to that you think would be able to to kind of lead well um but you look at the team they put out and there's a lot of players who haven't been in this position before. You know, you're looking at whether it's Buchanan or Knight or Edmondson, even Matt Clark, you know, these guys, Keller Roos, these, these are not players who have got a great deal of, of crunch time, end of season drama in their history. 
um, and that seems to be showing at the moment. Um, but for them in this game, you know, to take the lead in a way that effectively, if they'd held on, I mean, unbeknown to them at the time, given other results, but if they'd held on there, that would have basically been mission accomplished. To then concede two chances to Lukas Djukovic, both of them effectively free headers in in around the six-yard box, is like unforgivable. It's it's so, you know, there's one thing letting Duke score a header six yards out and him basically battering his centre back and doing it that way. And sometimes you got to hold your hands up and say, look, this guy is incredible at doing this. But it was so easy up against a side who, whilst they're obviously performing very well under under Lee Boyer in Birmingham, um, are not playing for much. <laughs> up against a side who are playing for everything. It, it's unbelievably disappointing. And, and as I say, it's it's hard to really make a case. You know, I was so impressed with what Rooney did when he first came into the job. Felt like he immediately improved them from from what Philippe Cocu had left. Now, even if they have moments where they still look like an OK team, it's just so desperate. And, and as you know, it, it feels to me like they are going to have to rely on the teams below them continuing to be very, very poor in order to get out of this mess. Um, you know, I mentioned on the Totally Football League show extra time that, that their home record had been very had been had been fine recently. Um the performance may have been okay for, for a spell here, but they've they've been beaten by a Birmingham side and then they host Wednesday on, on, on final day and, and on Sheffield Wednesday have to play Nottingham Forest in between those. And it's one of those games where probably most Forest fans would, would actually want their team to lose that game um in order to to um accelerate the possible relegation of Derby. And I have no idea. I mean, it's. I, I was going to ask Richie Wellens what he thought about it on the on the radio, but we didn't get there. I have no idea how much impact that can have, but it, it's it's hard to think that you know there won't be a a slight lack of motivation maybe for Forest players knowing that the pressure is maybe a little off just a little bit because their fans aren't going to be too gutted if they if they don't get the win. Safety achieved uh, for Birmingham <clears throat> and how? What an incredible incredible job from Lee Bowyer, and we we should never forget. The situation they were in only six and a half weeks ago, really, or maybe it was exactly six weeks ago when uh, Aitor Karanka was sacked at, at the start of the week and, and Boya uh, was brought in. It absolutely looked like Birmingham with a side, maybe a bit like Derby, where you didn't know where the next win was going to come from. You didn't understand how they were going to how they were going to make it work. But he's absolutely done that. It's a brilliant points return, so many wins. Uh, I also think that uh, Birmingham might break the goal, the amount of uh, the record for the amount of Headed goals. Um, they have scored nine under Boja so far. Seven of them headers um, from the Duke, from Dean, from uh, Roberts as well, but mostly from Djukovic. And uh, yeah, it's it's remarkable, really. They've only scored thirty-five goals in the league this season. Uh, Sixteen of them with their with their head. It's it's uh, it's almost fifty percent. And I don't think there are many other teams that get even close to that. In fact, looking at it now. You know, that headed goals never account for, for this much of a team's output. So <laughs> I'm excited for them to go full headers next season. Just they, You can only score with your head next season. There you go. <laughs> Make Put it up one difficulty setting for Lee Bowyer because it's looking a bit easy for him at the moment. Of course, the, the big test now is can they avoid being part of this bottom eight next season? Because that's where they've been for the last few years. And it would be lovely to have a season where we see Birmingham impact the league uh, in a more positive way next season. Cardiff beat Wickham, uh, which means Wickham basically need to win both remaining games by about five goals. 15 nil, isn't it? Yeah. And hope Derby lose theirs and hope Rotherham and Wednesday lose theirs. Um, this was all about Kiefer Moore looking like 
when the sort of 16 year old captain of the football team joins in on the playground with a load of young guys and is just way bigger and stronger and more skillful and better than everyone else that was that was what it <laughs> that's what it felt like to me watching the um watching the highlights back but George what a signing by the way 20 goals this season for big Kiefer sensational incredible um such an inspired you know we spoke about it pre-season just the the Welsh main man main striker of the national team going to the to the uh well the, the capital city club I wasn't going to say the biggest club in Wales because I think we'd have some upset Swansea fans getting in touch careful, if I did careful um and it's worked out really well um you know he's somebody who it, it's so hard not to be impressed by with with every part of his game really um he's somebody who at one stage looked to me like he was basically either a target man or a goal scorer um you know we saw at times in his career him not being particularly prolific but showing his kind of physical strengths we also saw you know particularly at Barnsley that he could, could be somebody to score a lot of goals and now he kind of feels like he's managed to bring all of that together um and you know age 28 now he feels like a player who to me could be a massive championship player for the next few years you know he's somebody who there's no reason why um he can't do this for well into his 30s um given his physical attributes and his his kind of calm finishing style he's somebody who i absolutely love and and you know would be and will be a massive assets card if going forwards um and you know big for them especially after the poor run they've had since Mick mccarthy agreed to stay on for next season um big for them to get uh, three points here and and you know push back up towards a a more respectable league position I think they're going to finish just outside the playoffs but for, for Wickham it was kind of a familiar tale I guess again wasn't it where they had probably enough chances in the game to to really do something but um you know, it feels maybe um not lazy but you know it just feels to me like Wickham and, and Rotherham have have both been on the receiving end of quite a lot of bad fortune um, this season, not I'm, I'm not saying by any means they deserve to win this, but yeah, it just doesn't really feel like the the cards fall right for for Wickham um, on, on many occasions. And this was another where they probably left feeling a bit aggrieved at not getting anything out of it. Wednesday is still without Darren Moore in the dugout. They lost to to Borough uh, over the weekend as well. That means that they need at least four points from their last two games for even a small chance of survival. Of course, they'd need results elsewhere to go their way as well most likely they need six points to be honest with you and I just wanted to shout out the youngster Josh Coburn who scored his his first goal for Borough on his second app uh, appearance I kind of figured he was a centre-back because he's a big fella and it was a brilliant right it was a brilliant header um, across from the right headed into the far corner but a striker so excited to see him develop over the next few years Uh, he was previously with Sunderland and now he is uh, a Middlesbrough player and a Middlesbrough senior professional goalscorer. And his celebration was just the classic youngster celebration. They just do not know <laughs> what to do with their hands, with their face, with their limbs. Uh, it was brilliant. So congrats to him. Um, we really must try and zip on to League One. But just to just to make some notes that uh, Preston beat Coventry in a pretty drab game. Um, but I want to give some love to Mark Robbins and Coventry because uh, they are safe. They'll be in the championship next season. He called it the biggest achievement in his managerial career, which when you consider he has taken them from League Two football Literally three years ago, they were playing League Two fixtures three years ago this week, uh, and they are now planning for another season in the Championship. It's uh, it's an astonishing effort, and I'm feeling pretty good about them improving a little next season. Uh, Huddersfield, they will be safe as well, you'd think, 
but there's not going to be a lot of positive vibes looking back at this season. And I think Tony Mowbray owes Carlos Corberan a drink because we've certainly seen <laughs> one quite effective way of playing against Blackburn Rovers and Corberan decided not to go with that. Um, weak set-piece defending, easy to play through, leaving tons of space in the final, uh, in the defensive third. Um, that, that's been something of a hallmark of their season. But a nice reminder for, for Rovers fans of what Brereton and Rothwell and Armstrong can do when they do have space to play into. Um, and the last note on this one is great to see Josh Caroma back, fit, playing and picking up exactly where he left off. A very Josh Caroma goal. Looking forward to him kicking on next season. Uh, I mean, he's only played the equivalent, George, of 16 full matches and he has three more shots on target than anyone else for Huddersfield in the league this season. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Uh, last but not least, Luton 3, Bristol City 2, 2-0 Bristol City at half time. Uh, Ollie, who is on the NTT20 betting squad, uh, he said, I'm going to back Luton, come back here because Bristol City are rubbish and I think they'll crumble. And boy, did we enjoy that comeback uh, on that group as it happened. Uh, Dewsbury Hall, the orchestrator with a ton of assists. Uh, and yeah, George, top half looking likely for Luton Town, which is astonishing, fantastic. And I think for Nathan Jones, we know what sort of character he is. Uh, he'll be very pleased that they look like they'll finish above Stoke City as well this season, which I'm sure he'll enjoy. Uh, as, for yeah. as for Bristol City, four wins to start the season, wasn't it, under Dean Holden? Since then, George, less than a point per game. 39 points from 40 championship games. A huge job this summer. Nigel Pearson sounds like he wants to do it, but also sounds pretty disdainful about everything and everyone, um, which is understandable. I don't even know how you begin to decide what to do with this squad, which, as I've said, has shown so little over quite a long period of time now. So there, there was a few notes from those games. I'm sure you've got a couple of things to add before we zip on to League One. Yeah, just echo what you said about Luton. Um, I think there's something glorious about the fact that they finished above Stoke this season, I must say, um, given the uh, understand, you know, the, the hard time that he gets... Um, you, know, you can understand why Stoke fans wouldn't rate him given what happened there. But at the same time, I think he's showing anybody who thought that he was a fraud. And I, and I even remember some Luton fans saying when they uh, when he left um, and after what happened at Stoke that they were better off without him. And I think that we can now see that it's um, yeah he deserves a lot of respect for the job that he's doing. And I'm interested to see where they're going to be next next season. For Bristol City, it's it's hard to say anything new. I think they are just <clears throat> they are just a, a really really poor side who are incredibly fortunate that they got loads of points on the board early on because um, right now they are desperate. I mean, they are as bad as anybody in this division and um, they need to completely rejuvenate the, the playing squad in the summer because I think if they go into, no matter who's their manager, if they go into next season with this group, I think they're, they're, they're likely to be going out of the, you know, they're a team who've, who've had aspirations to, to go up from the championship for a long time and they're now much, much closer to, to going out the other way. Good reminder not to overreact to early season form, eh? both with Bristol City and with yeah. Reading and with Reading to a certain extent as well. Um, but joining those teams in the championship next season nailed that segue. Hull City, who beat Lincoln 2-1 on the weekend. Josh McGuinness's sixth goal in six games and a Malik Wilkes penalty to win it. And that led to this tweet, George, club statement. Hull City can confirm that it has formally begun the procedures to withdraw from Skybet League One and join 23 clubs in a new competition, the Skybet Championship. That's <laughs> a lovely, topical, humorous and fun. It's the social media yes. uh, dream. Uh, what a day, what a season for Hull City. We welcome them back 
to the second tier. Yeah, and, and, and fully deserving of it as well. Um, you have to say what an impressive job um, Grant McCann has done there this season. They've been, you know, we talk about two other sides in the championship in Rotherham and, and when Wickham, who recently went up, and, and Derby as well, have been bad at winning games of football. Hull are just are so good at it. They're a team who, no matter what's happening in their games, they're the one team, I feel like, when they go one or behind in games, you're like, well, you know, you can be pretty confident they're going to get back into this one. Their level of performance is so consistently good. There's basically only one game this season, which was that bizarre game live on Sky um, on a Friday Fleetwood. night against Fleetwood, where Fleetwood just completely battered them, um, which didn't really make much sense at the time. And it makes even little, little sense now because they've been a consistent um, winning machine, effectively. Uh, then looking at the, the players who played a key part, there are so many of them. You know, you think of, I, mean, I know you and I have spoken loads about how we think George Honeyman has been one of the better players in League One this season. Um, you've got the, the kind of attacking trio of Malik Wilkes, Josh McGuinness and Lewis Potter. You'd have thought McGuinness was maybe the, the weak link out of those three a few weeks ago, but not the case now. He's been on blistering goal-scoring form over the last few weeks. Um, and, and I still think, you know, even though those those four players are very good, and, I, and I'm a big fan of Coyle as well at right back and Doherty's had a decent season, I still think when you look at their team, it's so easy to to kind of, because Hull have been up there since basically the first week of the season, to just shrug your shoulders and say, okay, fair play, well done. But we need to remember that this was a Hull side who basically nobody expected to bounce back like this. The bookies had them about 10th favourites for, for the league. You look at their kind of 1-11, to 11, and I do not think it is necessarily, especially in terms of depth, to one of the, the best in the division. Um, so McCann has done an incredible job of just making this such a consistent winning um football team yeah uh, amazing stuff I, I think yeah i'm interested to see how they're going to go next season i'm interested to see how the owners go about um a what they do with lewis potter and, and probably wilkes as well i'm sure they'll both have suitors and b if they invest heavily in the playing squad in order to try and uh ensure their survival um, well, I can I give you I can give you an answer of sorts because Thank you. Um, Phil Buckingham, who's a writer for The Athletic, our sponsors, uh, has done the piece on this. How Hull City have bounced back. NBA inspiration, a United squad, key recruitment and psychologist for the manager. Uh, that's the title of the piece. So you can find it on The Athletic. I'm not going to give too much away, but it is essentially talking about how you go from being eighth in the championship as they were then winning one game in 20, six points from a possible 60 and suffering relegation to bouncing back quite so swiftly and comprehensively. Um, and there is some notes on the owners and on how they want to run the club. Bear in mind that it's the same owners who were there when Hull City played Arsenal in the FA Cup final. They've, they have uh, experienced a lot and they appear to be going down the route of we want to run this sustainably now. We're not going to spend a lot of money on transfers. So as you say, they have got a lot of assets now. They've got players who you think, depending on what the market is like this summer, they could bring in some money in order to spend some money. But it'll still have to be a, a creative summer of recruitment, put it this way, to, to grow the squad from here. But... You know, you might not think it's one of the strongest squads on paper in the league, but it's it, it, it works. Grant McCann's got it working. And um, yeah, do, incredible. And I do think, you know, they've scored the most goals. They've conceded the fewest goals. They are an all-round complete football team. And I do think that could go some way next season. Not too many of them on loan either. So I I think this could be a case of, of more or less trying to ride, ride it out with the same squad and seeing where you are. 
uh, in January rather than making wholesale changes. But as you say, some players will be highly sought after. I mean, 33 points from a possible 39 uh, in the last 13 games. 10 wins, three draws is astonishing. Such worthy, um, such a worthy promoted side. And what's really nice as well is two homegrown players in Lewis Potter and Jacob Greaves playing key roles. Louis Coyle, the captain, albeit not came through at Hull, uh, very much born in Kingston-upon-Hull, a local lad. Uh, George Honeyman, such a key man as well, both on the pitch and off it. Key part of the celebrations as well. Great video on Twitter of him singing I Want to Break Free by Queen. Um, <laughs> that's what they did this season. And just as per The the Athletic, where that is concerned, uh, if you head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20, you can sign up for an annual subscription uh, at with a 50% uh, reduction so just £2.50 a month and not just this piece by Phil Buckingham on Hull City but this morning I read a brilliant piece from Nick Miller on ACL injuries an amazing interview with one of our favourite people in the EFL Sol Bamba with Phil Hay a great piece on Walsall from Andy Maidley uh, in which my favourite part was Walsall chairman Lee Pomlet calling Daryl Clark's decision to leave for Port Vale supremely unhelpful uh, which I thought is a, a <laughs> lovely way of putting it um, so do sign up to The Athletic today and head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20 to do so with a 50% discount. Now, we're not going to do a eulogy to Posh as we've just done for Hull, George. We probably could be confident of doing so. Their promotion has not been mathematically confirmed, but looks very, very likely. Maybe we'll do that next Monday. They beat Charlton. They are on the brink. I think they need one point from their remaining four games uh, they've got one uh, this midweek as well, or any more Sunderland drop points and it's done. But we'll save the the posh loving for, for next week, I think. Clark Harris did a Clark Harris and their underrated defence, which has conceded only 40 goals in 43 games, stood firm for the most part. Um, but it's, it's not just about posh's win, but rather quite how much Sunderland have tailed off in chasing down that top two. They're now winless in six. Uh, they were 2-0 up against Accrington on the weekend, back to 2-2. Then they were 3-2 up. But a Sean McConville free kick late, late on. And as I say, winless in six. So when we talk about Posh here, we kind of have to put Sunderland into the conversation as well. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the, the Charlton-Peterborough result was one of the most significant because, you know, it, it especially alongside Lincoln um, and Sunderland's results too. Because, you know, Lincoln were the ones who, if, if Lincoln beat Hull and Peterborough lost against Charlton... And Lincoln firmly had Peterborough in their sights for that, for that second spot. And I know that it didn't look like that with the table. And Sunderland were the ones who I think people expected to challenge. But in, in my head, before the weekend's games, that was the only way that Peterborough were basically not going to get automatic promotion. Um, so, you know, it, it was basically the perfect day for Posh. Um, I know that they'll probably now want to chase down Hull and, and get top spot. But I think that Lincoln beating Hull was, was, was good news for them, um, especially before that win. And then Charlton dropping the points um, massively opened up the, the playoff race where it now looks like there's going to be two teams out of four into two spots rather than just one of three into one because Blackpool's poor form. Um, for Sunderland, you know, it, what can you really say? It was, a, it was a game where they thought they'd won it twice. Um, you know, Charlie White getting to 30 goals for the season is a, is a hell of an achievement for a guy who I think... <laughs> Most, uh, I think if you told Sunderland fans at the beginning of the season that White was going to get 30 goals and Will Greg would be banging them in, I think they'd have... They'd have thought it was on loan at South Shields. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... it's. Uh, I guess the good thing for Sunderland is that they are not going through, and I kind of pointed towards this after those three defeats in a row, that they're not going through a streaky Lee 
losing streak where the sometimes the performances are so bad you know they're still proving to be a pretty effective attacking force even if they conceded these goals um and i don't think it'll be long before they're winning games of football again um they've certainly got plenty of games to come because they're going to have the playoff campaign too that's right we're going to be talking a lot about sunderland as we head into the postseason you'd have thought barring complete disaster they actually played blackpool on tuesday which is a big game for both of those sides, Huge. Um, Blackpool have now lost two in a row, a 1-0 defeat to Rochdale in the week and a 1-0 defeat to Shrewsbury uh, on the weekend. I'm not getting too worried. I'm not getting too worried. I was po- probably because I was so bullish and positive about Blackpool only a week or two ago. Uh, I don't want to overreact to these results. I think that, that for, for Blackpool, actually having the unbeaten run ended not the worst thing in the world. Uh, I think they just need to stay calm. They've still got the games in hand. I think they'll be okay. Let me sum up the playoff battle um, before we ask about some of those teams that picked up wins this weekend. So outside of, of Posh, you've got Sunderland in third on 73, Lincoln in fourth on 72, having played 42, Sunderland 43. Oxford have played 44 games. They're at the top of a group on 68 which also includes Blackpool on 68, having played 42, and Portsmouth just outside the playoffs on 68, having played 43. Charlton, two points back, 66, but they have only played 42 as well. So you've got Charlton, Blackpool and Lincoln with four games to go, Sunderland with three games to go, Oxford, uh, Sunderland and Portsmouth with three games to go, Oxford with two games to go. But Yellows, George, picked up another win on the weekend. 18 goals in your last six games. It, it, it must be a bit of a weird situation for you as someone who knows deep down that on the old PPG and with other, you know, it's not necessarily in your hands and yet probably can't help but get quite excited at the moment. You're in fifth. Can't believe it. Um, Tuesday night, you know, for Oxford, for Blackpool, for Portsmouth and for Charlton, it, it, I think Tuesday is just is massive um, and Oxford aren't even playing. You've got the Sunderland-Blackpool game that you mentioned, which is great news for those teams because that is a difficult game for Blackpool and not one that they're going to really um, be happy to have after two defeats in a row. Charlton hosts Crew in a game that you could probably expect them to to likely pick up three points. And um, and the final one is uh, Pompey away at Accrington, who... Again, you think Pompey are probably the likely winners of the two, but Accrington showed on Saturday that they are, they're not on the beach yet, um, if that makes sense. So I think on Tuesday, we're going to have a much better understanding about what's going to be happening in, in League One. It'll mean that, that Pompey and Oxford will have played the same amount of games. Charlton and Blackpool will still have one game in hand on on those two sides. Um, but if if two of those teams win, then those two teams are going to be very much in the, the the driving seat here going forward. If if one of them wins, then I think that brings Oxford massively into it, especially because uh, our last couple of games against Shrewsbury and Burton, I'm not saying they're easy, but they're probably harder games to have um, as your final two. Burton, understandably, going through, I mean, certainly not not, not reverting to anything like they were before, but but not quite the, the rampant Jimmy Floyd, Hasselbank army that we saw, saw earlier on in the campaign. Um, it's it's I think it's probably the most exciting bit of the Ooh. EFL now. Ooh, okay. Would you not agree? Uh, I could see where you're coming from. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I mean as a fan, I'm obviously going to think that, but it's the one part where there's still a lot of jeopardy and a lot at stake, and and you know four teams going into two places um, with all manner of permuta- permutations. It feels like this season is the first for a long time where 
a lot is going to be decided before we get to final day. And, and this is the one area where there's going to be massive games um, on, when is it? The uh, the 9th of May, Sunday, the 9th of May. So um, yeah, I'm really excited for it. But Tuesday feels like a big one for, for all four. Yeah, I'd like I, a fair point, actually. Fair point. Now, down at the bottom, where we thought we had the most incredible relegation battle, maybe we're starting to see that uh, it, 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 well, it certainly isn't decided, but a couple of teams have sl- started to pull away. We'll start with two of the sides who had relegation confirmed uh, on Saturday. Portsmouth beat Bristol Rovers 1-0. A much-needed win for Pompey after four without one. Um, I don't want to get too carried away here because Will Fisk, who writes great Sunday scouting reports, did say, whilst Pompey should have won by more against a woeful Rovers side, I do feel a little like PFC are running on empty with a lack of good players. There was certainly one moment of absolute quality, George Byers' back heel into the path of Curtis, who finished well. And Curtis looked looked dangerous, missed a couple of decent opportunities outside of his goal. So that's one to watch for, for Pompey. Now the upshot for Rovers, Bristol Rovers, that is, is that they were they were relegated. Um, George, what a mess this season has been for Bristol Rovers. Um, and, I mean, even the moments of positivity, even the, the wins, which clearly have been few and far between, only 10 wins in 44 games. Like, they didn't last long, those, those flashes of positivity. And I can't help but feel that it's been very disappointingly managed from the top. And I say that because... There was quite a lot of positive uh, positive vibes around the club in the summer because it felt like they wanted to do, let's say, a Lincoln or a what a lot of other teams do and massively reduce the age of their squad, try to get into a situation where they could have a squad of young players that were developing as they go, that could become assets for the club to sell on and, and keep that system moving, turning over nicely. Lots of other clubs do it. It felt like that's what Rovers were going to do. They hired a manager in Ben Garner who had a great record in youth football in terms of developing young players. And he was sacked after 11 games of the season where Rovers had only won three of 11. They were 18th in the table. Of course, those early league tables, there's very little between the two sides. So that's not to say they were well above safety or anything like that, but it, it certainly... It wasn't horrendous. They had just start. They had just experienced their first blip, and Garner went. Uh, Tisdale came in. Not a huge amount changed. There was one. There was one uptick in the interim period when Widrington was the caretaker manager, where they won three and four. But outside of that spell of games, they've been pretty desperate all season. Poor at the back. Terrible in the final third. Very little consistency to their play, and yeah, just no calmness, no leadership from the top, or I don't think in the dugout really. Even the guys that they hired to kind of fix the mess have taken quite strange approaches. I don't think personally, as much as I respect the job Paul Tisdale did at Exeter and in taking MK Dons up, he is a very specific character. He's an unusual character in football management, not a classic motivator by any stretch, not a classic manager in almost any sense, and maybe wasn't the man to breathe new life into this team. And as for Joey Barton, well... You can't argue that the results have been any better. What he has done pretty consistently is do the old classic, I'm the manager and I take responsibility, but, and then list everyone else that should take responsibility and hasn't had any positive impact either. So this young team that was considered exciting and talented at the start of the season suddenly finishes the season with a load of young players who look, who look like, you know, they've made a terrible decision to join Bristol Rovers, who are moving downwards in their career rather than upwards. Uh, a squad that looks like 
in hindsight, so imbalanced and so lacking in the sort of personalities and qualities that you needed to turn things around when things didn't go well. So what a mess, I guess. I could have just summed it up by saying that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he said after the game as well, um, he said, you know, I'll never accept that this is a relegation on my CV, even if it's going to be on my CV. And I was like, well, there you kind of go. And, and you, can, you, know, you can tell where he's coming from. He's by no means the... This wasn't a failure by his design, um, although he hasn't done anything to help it since coming in. Um, there, I, guess he, also I guess he also knows that compared to most League One managers, everything he says does really get poured over by the yeah. by, by the wider media, maybe more so than most at the level. But he... Yeah, I mean, they're another side who, who I do feel at times. And, you know, this Pompey game, they were they were very poor. It wasn't like Pompey were particularly good. They're another side who seemed to me um, to to just struggle to, to get points on the board, who put in some decent performances recently. Um, you know, the, the Lincoln game seemed to be the key one for me, where we had um, Ed Upson got sent off after 25 minutes after. Even, even though they were 1-0 down, they had enough of that game um, to suggest that they were going to come back into it. And even at, after 10 men, they looked like they were going to come back into it. Um, it's pretty disappointing. I mean, they were they were touted by many in preseason as being kind of a League One dark horse, dark horse for relegation. It turned out um, no process or understanding. You know, you touched on the three managers: Garner, Tisdale, Barton. I mean, where's the process there? What are you trying to do here? You've gone for uh, a coach with his first managerial job into a you know the most experienced EFL manager going. Um, in terms of longevity, uh, followed by a, a, a big name former player who's who's had one job which he did pretty well. It just doesn't strike me as an understanding about what they're trying to do. You know, work out what you're trying to do and then appoint the person who's going to best do that. Don't just have a scattergun approach to to management appoint, appointments. Um, interesting to see whether or not Barton's still there next season. My guess is that he probably will be. Um, my guess is that he'll see this as a pretty good opportunity to. To, to get promotion on his CV, which I'm sure he will think belongs there. Um, you know, this is a side in terms of the squad itself. He's been pretty outspoken about their lack of professionalism. Um, although he was, he was a lot calmer um, after the game on Saturday than he was in the week. You know, he said that they aren't bad. They aren't bad players. And they aren't bad guys and all this stuff. But I think we'll see another almighty shakeup uh, in terms of playing staff at, at Bristol Rovers. Um, but yeah, there's no, you know, they've been a very, very bad League One side for, for the most part. If you're going to be the club that brings down the age group or the average age of your squad that tries to start that process that we've spoken about at the top, you have to stick with it. You have to stick with it because you can't just lurch from manager to manager. And actually, the segue to the next game works very well on both of these fronts. MK Dons 5, Swindon nil, Swindon Town relegated to League 2. Milton Keynes move into ninth place in League 1. Now, for Bristol Rovers, I think MK Dons is a, a sobering example of what to do versus what they did. Um, MK Dons were certainly below Bristol Rovers in the table when Bristol Rovers sacked Ben Garner. I can guarantee you that because MK Dons, MK Dons only won one of their first eight games. And yes, the, the trust the process stuff must be very, very annoying for fans of opposition clubs. but uh, And it has become a bit of a catchphrase, which I'm sure will get boring after a while. But the words trust in your process, I think are very, very relevant for all EFL clubs at any level in whatever way they want to approach developing their club and, and achieving success, whether it is this, you know, 
uh, focus on on player trading and youth and and development of young players it doesn't have to be that it can be anything but you have to trust the process otherwise you you do just lurch from manager to manager you you can't be sure of anything any season really even if your budget is high for the league or low for the league nothing can be certain and i think swindon is is one to mention here as well because before the appointment of richie wellens nothing swindon had done as a club as an owner and a club suggested that they were a surefire thing to get out of league 2 that they had the right sort of plans or process in place to develop the club positively over a sort of mid to long term basis thankfully they hired a manager who had only ever had basically half of a managerial job before with Oldham and it turned out he could catch lightning in a bottle for them he could do something sensational which is what Richie Wenners did for Swindon last season but I mean, I listened back to what we said about them in the 1-24s. to We had them like 16th or somewhere like that. And of course, it was all about Wellens because we were enthralled to him. But even then, we noted that most of the squad that got them up last season wasn't present at the start of this season. And it didn't feel like Lee Power, the owner, had really backed Richie Wellens in the transfer market. And that was difficult for all clubs and owners to do uh, in the COVID era of last summer. But, I mean, if you look at the squad of Swindon now, there's only three or four key players from last season's promotion squad that are still at the club. And I think that kind of sums it up. They caught lightning in a bottle with Wellens last season with a ton of loanees that they couldn't retain. They didn't replace very well in a higher league, a harder league. Wellens himself feels that he wasn't, you know, backed by the board. I'm sure a lot of sacked managers will will say that, but I think it's hard to argue with that. And so, George, as the fans have done for a while now, but maybe more strongly than ever, the microscope turns to the owner, Lee Power, and turns to, to whether he can lead this club in the way that the fans want, because this season has, again, been desperate, relegation confirmed. What do you make of it all? Well, I think Lee Power got very lucky. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the appointment of Richie Wellens <laughs> was basically the only period of, of prolonged success in recent times under his ownership. Um, and little was done to try and retain his services. Little was done in the summer to maintain a, a playing squad to um, continue the success of last season. And little was done when he moved on to replace him with somebody um, of, of similar quality. And then when it was obvious that John Sheridan wasn't the man, little was done <laughs> to, to get rid of him and bring in someone who could help them. Um, it, it just, if you're a Swindon fan, it, it must be impossible to trust the owner to make the decisions for the benefit of the football club. And um, the platform and the hard work done by Wellens, and I asked him about this on Saturday, and he just said, you know, Swindon's a club where the fans are so important, and he just feels sorry for them. Because I asked him, is it difficult watching watching all the hard work you did last season? being kind of dismantled and he just said you know for the fans it's just a nightmare I just can't he just he seemed pretty downbeat about the whole thing um this was you know an, an indictment of the whole season just rolled over so easily by an MK Don side who I don't think Spindon fans feel should be a team who they come up against and are, and are just completely and totally outclassed uh so yeah we'll see who the who the manager is next season uh, I think Spindon um fans will expect them as they did last time to make it to be up towards the top end of the, the league two table next season. 
I personally think that if you know if the ownership doesn't change, uh, I would say not. And you know, I'm not comparing them necessarily too closely with Southend, but you, you know, Southend were a team with, with financial issues and troubles with the owner and things like that that we haven't seen go away over this season in League Two, and they're now going down to the National League. If Swindon or if Lee Power stays at the club and doesn't improve his decision making, I think next season could be um, a, another difficult one for Swindon. They have to get the appointment right because at the moment they are they are a club in in absolute freefall. Well, Will Griggs scored four goals, which is uh, yes. very noteworthy, and MK Dons very kindly tweeted out the stats that I can read now that since their defeat to Plymouth Argyle on the 19th of December, 25 games, 14 wins, which is the joint second best in terms of wins in that time, the third best in terms of points, 45 points, the tied for fifth best in terms of goals with 43 uh, in that period. So they'll be a team to watch over the summer. They had a magnificent January transfer window, a lot of players straight in contributing um, going to be really interesting to see what they do next. Everyone else in the relegation picture drew Wigan, Wimbledon, Northampton and Dale. Uh, good news for those, you have to say, in Wigan and Wimbledon who are above the dotted line as none of their challenges got closer to them. Rochdale versus Wimbledon in southwest London on Tuesday night seems huge. Uh, anything other than a, a thumping Dale win would have Wimbledon feeling very confident of safety and would give Dale, you'd think, probably too much to do. But if Dale do win... Things could get quite tasty indeed. So we'll be recapping that one on Totally Football League Show Extra Time on Thursday. Uh, and Fleetwood beat Donny. I just wanted to note this one because I enjoyed the Sunday scouting report from someone called Reeve, with loads of E's in their name, uh, <laughs> who said this was two teams uh, who changed manager halfway through the season. Fleetwood identified an experienced manager in Simon Grayson and have a clear plan. Doncaster Rovers just did nothing and have no direction at all. They look hopeless. And I think that's how a lot of Donny fans are feeling at the moment. Yeah. In League Two, George, it was a big weekend, some huge fixtures. And I'd say it didn't disappoint for drama. We'll start at the top because Cambridge could have been promoted with a win against Stevenage. Their CEO, Ian Mather, told us that the champagne was ready in the fridge. And I don't mean to mock because... Of course you'd have champagne in the fridge on the day that you could win promotion because you'd feel a bit stupid if you did win it and you didn't have any champagne to spray. Yeah, it would be annoying that. Uh, but they'll need to keep... no, but Nobody wants warm champagne as well. Exactly. In that sense, they will need to keep the fridge on for a few days longer because they lost 1-0 to Stevenage. Their promotion was not confirmed. Um, what I would say is that, A, Bolton playing against Morecambe, third versus fourth, was just the perfect fixture for Cambridge. Uh, obviously, Bolton's win, Morecambe's defeat, means that Cambridge didn't really lose much. Uh, Morecambe didn't get any closer to them. They just need one point now, Cambridge, with, I think, three games to go, two games to go. Uh, and, of course, as we noted with Ian on that show, they've almost always bounced back after defeats this season. So you might expect them to do so versus Harrogate on Friday night. Uh, Aidan sent in a Sunday scouting report about this one, saying that Jack Smith who is a Stevenage Academy graduate, is definitely one to watch. So that is a name that I'm flagging up now. We'll all go and watch some clips. We'll decide if we agree. Jack Smith, one to watch for Stevenage. But George, heading to the top of the table after beating Colchester, as good as up, if not also mathematically promoted, Cheltenham Town. Magnificent. Magnificent Cheltenham Town. will be playing in League One next season. 22 years ago, in the uh, 22 years after Mike Duff scored the goal that lifted them into the Football League from non-league for the first time, he's now taken them up into the third tier as manager. 
Um, uh, we got big grins on our face here. We love this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's just it's the antithesis of what I was talking about with with Swindon, um, where it's just great running of a football club. It is a long term aim that was nearly. Um, seen through last season in the playoffs and fell short and then just a, a continuation uh, a belief in a manager in Michael Duff um, in order to improve and continue to improve the football club a is there no sense though that there could be similarities down the line with Swindon if we think that Mike Duff is just a sensational manager for the level that that might hard to be replicate maybe were he yeah, to yeah, ever yeah. leave the club Yes, although I would say that there's more of a history of Lee Power making um, bungling decisions, let's say, than than um, than you know, Cheltenham aren't a club that we associate with Correct. with um, poor ownership. Uh, and um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's incredibly impressive what they've done. They've got so many different ways of of beating you. You know, they are defensively so good. Um, they are a side who, whilst not playing necessarily scintillating football they are a team who create plenty of chances who understand how to create chances who have of course the bent toes along throw that you adore so much as well um they're just a very good side and you know again you look at their team you look at their kind of one to eleven and it's not full of glittering stars you know you compare their one to eleven with honestly i've never seen anything like it i mean every club that wins a league or wins promotion you can easily carve out two or three players and you're saying they were star yeah. they were stars for the club and they're stars for the level and you i honestly don't know who that is for cheltenham I think it's, isn't it the back three yeah to- tozer <laughs> to- and boyle, tozer, boyle and, and Racken, yeah um, amazing isn't it uh yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's incredible it's incredible you know you take sam smith for example a player who i've seen a lot of who looked to me in league one like he was out of his depth last season at cambridge failed to do much you know he hasn't been by any means uh a big player but he goes there and he's you know he's playing his part it's a club where it seems to me players <laughs> excel basically under Michael Duff he finds a way to make players better to get them playing their part and it's it's so impressive um they're a side to as you know as long as he's there irrespective of of whether or not they are able to compete to get the players you think you need for league one level it, it's it just strikes me as very, very hard not to see them being a decent side. And we know that they play the loan market very well as well. So I'm sure we'd expect next season they'll get three or four players in from loans from Premier League or Championship clubs who, as they often do, or as they always do at Cheltenham, will be big assets to them. Defensively sensational and have been ever since he came in. Going forward, as you say, there's a lot that doesn't make sense in the sense that no one has scored more than eight goals for them this season. Alfie May and Andy Williams both with eight. Circum with six from midfield. Thomas with five. Uh, Will Boyle, the centre-back, with six as well. Um, and yet, if you watch them, everything they do makes sense. Uh, and that's, I think, the best way to sum them up. They are such a complete football team, as you say. And anyone who thinks that they are just a set-piece threat, well, Fox Punters, XG ratio tables that we get um, they get split up and broken down in all different kind of ways including uh, xg created from open play and xg created from set plays and top over the course of the season for open play expected goals in league two is cheltenham town so there you go uh, lastly a nice touch this john palmer local journal um, tweeted i didn't know this but michael duff and grant mccann having played together for cheltenham town and yeah, Northern i love Ireland, this best mates duff is godfather to grant mccann's eldest son 
They've both led their clubs to automatic promotion with Hull securing that return to the championship as well. That is just a really nice touch. Um, I wonder what the equivalent could be for us one day. We'll see. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, the, the big game of the whole season in League Two took place as well. Um, previewed by ourselves, Morecambe, Bolton, Morecambe nil, Bolton won uh, in the end. I have to admit my first note here says, Morecambe, stop getting people sent off in big games. It massively hinders <laughs> your ability to pick up points and results in crucial matches. Matt Siege, Good analysis. Siege, who's a, a Morecambe fan who we love, he's done the research. Four red cards in big games against promotional rivals when drawing have gone on to lose all of those. Uh, that was against Newport, against Tranmere, against Newport again, uh, against Bolton on, on the weekend as well. Cambridge, uh, they were... Uh, well, they were losing against Cambridge when they had a man sent off in the 55th minute as well. So it really has been a theme of their season. Uh, of course, it's not the end of their season, Morecambe, but George Bolton had to get the job done. They did get the job done. One more win and they're up. Um, given that they've won 15 of their last 20 games, you'd say that that is more likely to happen than not. A brilliant second half of the season. Uh, what, what Did this game live up to, to its billing in your eyes? You were very excited about it. I think it did and it didn't. Um, the... The red cards um, ruined it, I guess, to an extent, because from that moment, suddenly you had a a shootout where there was one team who, who were quite clearly at an advantage and that team went on to win the game. Um, but it should be pointed out that Morecambe would have been pretty good value for a point here, I think. Despite going down to 10 men against a side banging form, they made a hell of a fist of, of trying to get back into it and had their chances to make it one all. So it's 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 frustrating for Morecambe. Um, for for Bolton, it's another success. It is, I think, what is it, a seventeenth one goal margin victory this season. Um, so there are two sides to that coin. Where, on the one hand, it's a side who have learnt how to win. On the other, if I was a Bolton fan, I would want that to be um, looked at for next season because often teams who who have enjoy a record like that, they need to impart a little bit more superiority in games in order to make that sustainable um that this is not me saying that it's not sustainable but just i think i can pretty much guarantee that bolton won't win 17 games next season by one goal margins if they're gonna go up again they'll have to work out a way to ensure that they're more than a goal clear going into in late stages of games otherwise it's unlikely they'll be able to do it but for um yeah for morecambe i I guess, in a way, the only positive about this for, for Morecambe is that, you know, automatic promotion now looks very, very unlikely. So does that give them time to get over any um, disappointment ahead of the playoffs? Maybe, you know, maybe maybe they need that because if it, if they'd gone down on final day and they'd gone down to the wire and they'd, they'd missed out, I think it would be very, very hard to bounce back. Whereas, you know, they, they'll have enough time to gain some perspective and understand that finishing fourth or finishing fifth is still a hell of an effort given what was expected of them, and that they are as good as anybody in this division and have nobody to fear in the playoffs. So, yeah, I was it was annoying they for me. They played really well. You know, they played, played really, even, said, even yeah. with 10. Yeah, even with 10. Yeah, yeah. They, they definitely played well. So it's no um, frustrating, yeah, as I said, because I think this this had the makings of being an, an incredible tie, which has made it a lot easier due to a moment of, of stupidity from, uh, from Mella. Elsewhere in this conversation, we had a couple of draws, really, didn't we? Exeter drew with Newport and Forest Green drew with Crawley. It meant that Tranmere were big winners of the weekend. Uh, they edged Barrow 
1-0. Keith Hill getting a lot of credit for a half-time switch. Uh, they looked pretty poor in the first half. Two subs at half-time. Dave the Difference, Nugent and Otis Khan coming on for, <laughs> for Lloyd and Morris. Uh, Khan was then combining really nicely with Feeney down the right-hand side early in the second half. And it was Feeney who crossed for the difference to head home. Only a second goal of the season. So that's back-to-back wins for Tranmere. I'm pretty confident they'll be in the playoffs now. They could theoretically still catch Bolton and they could theoretically still be caught by those outside the playoffs but it seems unlikely Uh, the big question mark annoyingly because I don't like talking about injuries all the time is still James Vaughan because the plot has kind of thickened George we spoke a couple of weeks ago about how weird it was that there was no update no suggestion when he might be fit and with a knee injury and, and reported knee surgery you know it could be not at all this season and then he came back and he came off the bench twice and then he's been missing from the last two squads since then. And Keith Hill is still keeping Sturm as to what's happening, where the Vaughan will play. I, I, I honestly don't know what's happened there, but <laughs> Tranmere in the playoffs with Vaughan, Tranmere in the playoffs without Vaughan are two completely different prospects, different teams, I'm afraid. And I wouldn't normally... Mm-hmm. I am not someone who normally thinks that the success of a team hinges on whether their striker is fit or not because I think there's more to being a good team than that. But there's no doubt that Vaughan specifically is so valuable to this team that uh, his his uh, presence or otherwise in the playoffs seems huge. And then the big other winners in terms of putting pressure on, George Salford City, looming large in the rearview mirror, aren't they? Back-to-back 2-0 wins. Um, improved under, under Gary Bowyer. Four wins, two draws, two defeats since he took charge. And they do look fairly ominous right now. Yeah, they do. Um, I, I don't know necessarily exactly what what Guy Bowie has changed. I mean, having that great defensive record was always going to mean that if they could learn how to put the ball in the back of the net, they were going to be um, a side to fear. Um, they kind of remind me in that sense to Brentford in the Championship where they're going to be a very, very awkward side to face in the playoffs because of that. Um, Richie Talb was sent off for a straight red, so I don't know if that is a one-game ban or a three-game uh, ban. Very, very violent conducty. So that'll be a three-gamer. So that means he will miss the first... Uh, they play 43 or 40 or mm. 40. They've got three games still. So, so he'll be he'll be fresh as a daisy <laughs> for the for the for the playoff. Um, if if but if they get there, that's the key thing here. He's a big miss for them, as they need to to get those points to secure um, the sport. I guess it's quite similar in League Two to League One, where there are there are what four teams probably Exeter still with a shout. Four teams to go into into two places. It's not quite as tight as it is in League One, um, but at least the the playing field is level with all those teams playing playing forty three points. I guess Tranmere could be caught if they were to have uh, a couple of duck eggs in their last two games. But um, yeah, I mean Salford do look the side where if I was Morecambe, Tranmere, whoever else, I'd be hoping that they would be the ones to miss out because if they do get there, um, that means that they would have continued their good form into the end of the season. And you know, a team that don't create don't concede many goals, who don't concede many chances. A goal difference of plus 17 kind of shows you, X to also plus 19 shows you that when they're on it, um, they're a side who can who can really make their dominance felt. Um, and they, they look to be trending at the right time. Yeah, it's as simple as it always has been with them. Every time they've scored two under Gary Bowyer, they've won. And when they haven't scored two, they haven't. And that's been the case basically all season. Uh, I wouldn't say they're purring going forward, uh, but two great goals on the weekend showed the, the quality of the players that they have. Hunter and Henderson with some some brilliant, brilliant goals. I'd suggest that it's Newport, who they are one point behind, and Forrest Green, who they are two points behind, who are feeling the pressure most after they drew. Here's the situation quickly. Uh, you've got Cheltenham, 78. Cambridge, 77. Bolton, 76. 
And then a dotted line and a four-point gap to Morecambe on 72. Tramir on 72. They've both played 44. Two games to go. Forest Green, five points back from Tramir on 67. And Newport on 66. They've both got three games to go, as do those trying to chase them down. Salford, Exeter, Carlisle all have three games left as well. Salford are one point behind Newport uh, on 65. Exeter, 63. And Carlisle, 61. Uh, Orient, also 61. Those two probably done now, you'd say. Um, relegation chat. Well, George, just like it felt, just when it felt like Southend and Grimsby were done, they both won on the weekend. Uh, <laughs> and results elsewhere means they both technically still have a shot. I think we we can both take one each here. We've both got an apology to make. Uh, anyone who listened to the betting show will know that I thought Southend um, capitulated last Tuesday in defeat to Colchester and looked like a team that realised that they had been relegated and were acting accordingly. I couldn't understand how that would translate into a, a result on the weekend, and they went and beat Leighton Orient 2-1. So apologies to Phil Brown and his squad of players. They showed a lot more fight, um, a lot more composure than I thought they had in them. Uh, and George, the same really uh, for, for Oldham. You thought Oldham would beat Grimsby, and the opposite happened there. Yeah, I can't believe this. Having been so sweet on Grimsby for all season, I... Yeah, anyway, um, they, again, have put in such a good performance. You know, you take out the Morecambe game, the game they lost 3-0 at home, and Grimsby's performances have been pretty good for such a long stretch of time. And, I, like, I, in my head, they were down. You know, they, they were relegated. Um, but just looking at it again, you know, it's six points to make. I mean, obviously, their goal difference is much worse. Six points to make up in three games. Do you want me to do some permutations? Because I've done, I've kind of looked at it. So, but- well, because... Yeah, I mean, the it's, it's thing, hard. It's hard to just look at the table and go through. I've actually got some notes which might help here. So I was just going to say that the big thing is that Barrow and Southend play each other, isn't it? Like that is that's the key. Yeah, yeah. Barrow, so take your notes. You can definitely look at the league table and talk yourself into some hope for for Grimsby and a lesser extent Southend, just because Grimsby have got that extra game to play. Barrow have lost their last three, and Scunthorpe, one place above them, have lost their last four. So that certainly helps. Uh, if you're if you're hoping for some drama here, but Grimsby need at least seven points, ideally nine from their last three games, right? So two wins in a draw, minimum three wins, ideally, and hope that Barrow and Scunthorpe don't even pick up a point from their three remaining games. Uh, for Southend, it's even harder because they've played a game more than all of those teams. Two wins for Southend could get them above Barrow if Barrow lose the rest of their games, but not above Scunthorpe unless there is a twelve goal swing in that time so still exceptionally unlikely but we've got another weekend where at the very least we can say there's a chance and that's exciting uh mm-hmm. just to finish off some league two chat Walsall beat scunthorpe with uh manny osadebe the star he's looked really good in the last few weeks and shout out to port vale as well they beat bradford a stonking eight wins in nine games for vale just like last season they're finishing so strong i am constantly reminded that i picked them to be a top three side this season uh, and I can't quite get my head around what's happened to them this campaign. <laughs> but no doubt I'll be lured into doing similar next season after this ends to the season. Um, George, uh, Daniel C, who is an NTT20 squad member, and we'd love some more following this podcast. If you click on the link in the description, you can check it out. You can join the NTT20 squad at the cost of £9.99. Uh, we're running right till the end of the season. We've got so much to look forward to over the next few weeks. Daniel said, do you think any clubs in any relegation zones, in any of the three leagues, have a realistic opportunity of getting out of it now? Realistic opportunity, just about. 
Do I think it'll happen? No. Feels like Rotherham and Rochdale are probably the most likely, but that's still in- yeah. improbable, right? Uh, and Gab said, uh, what do you make of Simon Weaver's first season in EFL management? That's the Harrogate Town manager, of course. Do you think he's won championship and upper league one clubs could be looking at in a few years? I mean, I don't know about necessarily championship clubs first and foremost. I, th- I think off the top of my head, a championship club hiring a league two manager is 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 rare. That's not to say I think it shouldn't be done more often, but I certainly think that clubs higher up the pyramid should be looking at Simon Weaver both in a couple of years. And if they're really smart and want to get ahead of the, the battle for him, potentially now, because... You know, to keep Harrogate up this season after the job he did to get them out of non-league in the first place, to have a you know 15-point gap between no 13-point gap between themselves and the relegation zone at the moment, to have won 15 games this season, to have done that all having had barely a pre-season because they had to play playoff games uh, in non-league when everyone else was resting, shall we say, to have done so with more or less the same squad of players, very few of whom have had EFL experience, to have done that playing what I consider to be among the most attractive football aesthetically, depending if what you're into uh, in the division. I mean, a lot of ticks in a lot of boxes. I think the thing with Simon Weaver is so many people won't get past the fact that his dad is the chairman and owner of the club. And therefore, there's huge nepotism at play. And he's only in the job because his dad's the owner, owner and chairman, which ignores the fact or rather... Yeah, ignores is probably the right word or a lack of knowledge that he was the manager before his dad was the chairman. Um, So he was already in place before his dad owned the club. And if that holds him back, then I would feel a bit bad for him because everything that he could possibly done, uh, could possibly have done as manager of Harrogate has been an unbelievable job. And who's to say that just because his dad is the chairman, he couldn't do that uh, at another club elsewhere. I'm really looking forward to seeing how Harrogate kick on next season and uh, looking forward to watching them play in the flesh. Last but not least, George, you have been guesting on another podcast. Yes. Which once people have listened to this... dare I? ...this epic Monday pod, Bumper Edition, they can then go listen to you talk about some slightly more light-hearted topics. Yeah, something a bit different. Um, I was on Football Book Club podcast, which is a great pod that I have listened to um, a fair bit during the most recent lockdown. And the premise is that they take a, a football book, normally a kind of 90s or noughties um, peripheral player and his autobiography. I was lucky enough to be given Dean Windass, former Oxford legend Dean Windass's autobiography, who we interviewed on Going Up, Going Down. Um, and chatted to the guys um, about the book, which is a remarkable read uh, for a fair few reasons. It's something a bit different. Um, yeah, quite quite funny, hopefully. Um, and I've got a trailer here, which we're going to play out the show with. So if you like the sound of it, then do check it out. Um, I've tweeted the link, and you can also find them on Twitter under at Footy Book Club. Thanks very much for listening, guys. Here's the trailer for that. But as always, a massive thanks for your support. We'd love to see more of you join the NTT20 squad on Leveller. Links in bios and descriptions. You should be able to find it if you'd like to. And do come and join. It's brilliant fun. We promise that we will work our absolute hardest to make it worth your while. And we know that just being part of the community is uh, is a wonderful thing. So join us there and listen to us again second half of the week on The Betting Show and the Totally Football League Show Extra Time. 
please welcome to the show, George Alec. Hello. Woo. How are you doing, George? Combining kind of football nostalgia with reading and Dean Windass. It is right down my street. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite lines in the whole book is when he says, they say that football is a land of milk and honey, but my road to success was covered in rice and peas. <laughs> it's just like, and I'd like to see Dean Windass host the reboot of Deal or No Deal, which has yet to have its reboot. <laughs> I feel like his conversations with the banker would be incredible and he would buy. And George, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to have you on. Do you enjoy it? Please. I loved it, yeah. Yes. We cool. I said no. No, yeah. I, thought it was, I thought it was awful. Um, 